This episode of ArcaSpeak is brought to you by Arcat. Are you the BIM jockey for your firm? Are you used to the grind of using broad search engines or searching manufacturer sites only to find they don't have BIM? Are you wrestling with outdated or poorly built objects? It's time to use Arcat.com. Arcat is a free library of over 7,500 BIM objects and systems, all available in multiple formats. Even better, each object is high-quality BIM based on actual manufacturer products. You don't even have to register to access Arcat's BIM library. Just head over to Arcat.com, that's A-R-C-A-T.com, and start downloading the BIM objects you need. And don't forget their new Revit plugin, Biminit. Come on, Cormac, sing it. Sing it. Biminit. <laughs> Biminit. Biminit, which allows you to access Arcat.com's huge library of free BIM objects. Yeah, those 7,500 we just mentioned. Families and systems, all without leaving Revit. So check that out at Arcat.com. And thanks to Arcat for sponsoring this episode of Arcaspeak. Computer. What's the future of architecture? Hmm, I don't know that. Welcome to Archispeak, the podcast that talks about what it's like to work in the profession of architecture. Welcome to episode 149 of the Archispeak podcast. I'm Neil Pan. I'm Evan Troxell. And I'm Cormac Phelan. First off here, let, let's get this out of the way because we, we want to acknowledge a donation that we got from Ruben Villanueva. And uh, we've been chatting with Ruben on Twitter a little bit about uh, he's gone back and listened to a lot of the shows starting, I think he said he's starting from the beginning and kind of binge listening. So oh it's always God. fun. Yeah. Well, wow, he's, that's he's got a lot of uh, many hours to, to go through, but... We wanted to to say thanks to Ruben and uh, and also just thanks for reaching out and chatting with us along the Wait. way because I mean it's a long road that's a lot of listening. I was to say, do we want to say thanks or we're sorry? Well, it's it's not it's very nice of or, or we, both. maybe both. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> apologetically thankful. There you go. Yes, there you go. That that sounds so. Good. Thanks, Thank Ruben. You, Ruben. And uh, if you guys Absolutely. if you guys go through our our Twitter feed, you might might see that. But it's it's always fun to chat with listeners. So definitely uh, for all you other listeners who are out there, um, Ruben was was because he's listening to old episodes. I guess that's how he found the donation link. But it was kind of cool for him to to do that and then just tweet with us. And it, it's always fun to chat with our listeners. So thanks, Ruben. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So what are we talking about this week? Well, I just got back from St. Louis. I went to the, I, it's kind of a precursor to the Built Conference, which used to be known as RTC, which was like a Revit conference. But I think they took Revit out of the name. I'm, I'm not sure of the whole story, but it's it's actually a, a BIM conference you can go to without uh, being having your shoulder looked over by Autodesk overlords the whole time. So <laughs> wow. they, they are there, they have a presence there, but it's not about them. So like Autodesk University, obviously that's put on by Autodesk that's in Vegas every year. This is also a yearly tech conference in, for architecture, engineering and construction. And this year it was in St. Louis at the downtown uh, hotel union station, which is a very cool hotel. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's very cool. It's... St. Louis itself is a, is an interesting city because I just talked to somebody who used to live there for a long time, and she said that um, it's interesting. People don't move to St. Louis. They they just stay there or leave. 
<laughs> so it and it kind of felt like that. I mean, I wanted to. That's what we were talking about. Was like I I went for runs. I went walking downtown. I went down to the arch. But it, it's it's fairly. Uh, it's not a vibrant, right. lively city like New York that we just experienced. That's for sure. Right. Right. Well, what's interesting, and, and you saw it firsthand, is um, you know for the longest time the arch was detached from downtown, right. and so you were there and you could see the arch, but you couldn't physically engage it and walk over to it. And with them capping over the interstate and creating that park and going from, I guess, the old city hall building out to the arch and making that you know this this big grand gesture, and then the new museum. Right. You know, that's what they're hoping for is they're hoping to be able to have more tourists engage in downtown. So they're spending a lot of effort to do that. And, and I'm excited to go back later on and see, you know, how it goes. And because and going there and doing the you know project that we've been working on, I got to go to the arch, but at times the arch wasn't open, so I couldn't go up in there. And they had been working on the the museum for, what is it, the... Museum of Westward Expansion. Yeah, Jefferson's like Memorial of Westward Expansion, something like that. That's it, yeah. Which, you know, looks like it's going to be a great space. It, it's it's kind of carved into the ground underneath, you know, right in underneath the arch and, and everything. Were, were you able to go yes. there? yep. Oh, so how was it? It's awesome. It, really well done. I don't know who the architect is, do you? I know who the designer was, and that was uh, James Carpenter and Associates. Oh, it's really well done. I have to say, uh, and, and like you said, it's kind of connected to the courthouse, not the courthouse. Yeah. The courthouse up there. That's what the dome building okay. is. And then yeah, this, okay. this big landscape gesture and it's very pedestrian friendly. Obviously they're trying to encourage people to hang out there. And then you come up to this kind of semicircular cut in the ground and you can enter on either side of the circle. There's kind of a plaza in the middle and there's this big glass facade that's curving with lots of stainless steel it's it's looks like it's really i mean it, it's going to last a long time it's super nice beautiful uh and then you go into the visitor center you buy your tickets you go through the tsa style security thing and then <laughs> because you know you're you're what's neat about it is that the entire museum is subterranean and yeah. and you can tell that they've put a lot of thought into this because you kind of go through this procession of history of westward expansion. I mean, that's what the the arch is s symbolic of. And that was, if you kind of go back in history and look at why the, this is, thing is even there, they had a design competition to symbolize westward expansion and to raise up um, what was going on there on the Missouri River waterfront because it was just a dilapidated area. It was in really bad shape. And so this was one yeah. of their ways to kind of inject some new... Um, life into the city right there and so they had this design competition but but the westward expansion is the whole idea behind it and i think that the arch is kind of a beautiful symbol of all that because it's this gateway right of moving from east to west and what's so neat about this this uh procession on subterranean procession that you go through is they've got like stagecoaches and all this amazing history down there and they talk about all the west you know jefferson's plans and and you you get all the way through this thing and then you get to the design competition and what my friend said was that they never had anything in there because be, previously you would just go to the arch and there was like these two uh ramps that kind of are in axis with the arch so not perpendicular to the arch but with the arch so where you could go down underground and they had nothing about 
kind of what what the competition was all about, the design or anything, and now they do. So you get in there and and you can actually see the other proposals for the for the competition. You can see one of the original models from Saarinen's office that's about six feet tall. It's a it's this beautiful Whoa. scale model of the arch, which was their uh, Daddy Saarinen's entry. Uh, yeah, they had all of them. They had all yeah. of them in there. So uh, I'd like to it was pretty cool. Um, but I mean, it's also kind of obvious when I think when you look at it that they picked the right one. I mean, it they're it's yeah. it's interesting to see the very different ways people thought about this. And obviously, the, this design was probably the most daring. But it's it's one of those things where you look back into the way that architecture offices used to operate and with lots and lots of physical models and. I mean, Saarinen obviously have, has many grand designs that are built, but this one I think was so daring in the way that not only is it this beautiful symbol and it's simple and it's it's very much of of kind of a a look forward into what architecture could be, but it's also inhabitable, so you can go up into this thing, and like that's that's an amazing thing. Because it's all about the experience at that point. Like, like yeah. you get to experience it from the ground level, and you also get to experience it in so many other ways. But in it, you know, it always just baffled me. I mean, when people are looking at that, you know, I, I just w- would love to have gotten into the judges' heads of like, okay, I see all of these different designs, and here's this never seen before kind of stainless steel arch massive you know at a massive scale and they're just like yeah i think that one will work how much of the conversation just, was that'll never work exactly it probably you know it was just like there's no way that that'll work uh, but yeah, i wonder you know as much as as much daring as it took for him to submit that took them equal amount of daring and nerve to like be able to pick that one and say yeah this is what we want and I mean, I th- honestly, I think we're all better for it. Think about like the technological advances that this guy made just doing that. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty amazing stuff. But just, I mean, you, you see some of these just like amazing, daring pieces of, of of architecture that you look at and you're like, how the hell is that standing? And you go back and you get just wonder. It's like, how the hell did they pick that as the one to do? Because that took some guts. Yeah, it did. And, and what's interesting too is just kind of the lifespan of the whole competition. I, I won't get into it really here, but if you, we'll put a link to the Wikipedia page or something. But interesting because I think that the competition was submitted in 1947, and it was built wow. in what 67, I think, something like that. Yeah. So you're you're talking 20 years between design competition, and I think that the pro, like the whole idea was started in the 30s like the initial planning and funding for it so hmm. you're talking like a very long time and that the pace of architecture is a slow one <laughs> right we all know this but but going from 47 to 57 right when you're actually talking about working on the model and refining elements to 67 when it actually kind of tops out so pretty or maybe it's 69 so it, it's it, it's 67. a long long process man so Open anyway the public on june 10th 1967 for yeah. those that are curious yeah 20 years uh from when they entered the competition to opening crazy um so anyway now i mean you get to experience all that so you get to 
see that whole history, which I think is fantastic. Obviously, there's a gift shop down there where you can buy many arch-related things. And then you go up into the arch if you've paid for the, the ticket for the tram. They call it a tram. It's kind of a, a interesting elevator-like system where it kind of starts underneath and, and then goes up into either the north or the south leg of the arch. You can pick which one you want to go up, and it kind of recalibrates as you go up to get it back to level. It's it's a mechanical system. It's really interesting. And there's actually a little bronze model of that as well in there. So if you're interested in conveying systems or anything like that are particularly unique, it's interesting to see. And then I got all the way up, up there, and it had been like crazy thunderstorming. Uh, on and off all day and all the windows were fogged up and you could barely see out (laughs) the windows so i would think that you know it's it's a really cool experience to get up and down and and be up in there you know you're 630 feet in the air when you're up in there and you're in the cross section of this triangular arch and not not triangular in overall shape but the, the cross section is triangular and it's so interesting to be up there and and look out these little windows and kind of lean out. They've got like these carpeted um, areas where you you actually lean lay your body on to look out the window, and and it's interesting because you can look straight down. You can look totally below, or even kind of it feels like you can look underneath and behind you almost because wow. of the the perspective that you're at up there and the field of view. Um, so there was like a couple little areas where there was little clear spots in the glass and everybody who was up there at the same time was kind of clamoring to look through those. Otherwise, it was almost impossible to see out because of mm-hmm. all the, the condensation on the outside of the glass. You couldn't like wipe it clean or anything. And the windows are tiny. You know, they're they're two feet wide and six inches tall, something like that. So it's mm-hmm. one of those things where it, it could be a really cool experience. I, I would think at night it would be beautiful up there. Um Anyway, I, I didn't spend a lot of time because there was nothing really to see, but it was a neat experience. I went back down and uh, had to get to the conference. So I guess we can go on and talk about that part of the show. So the so what's the conference? The conference is, yeah, yeah. so I said it's it was kind of a precursor to the Built Conference. So I did not go to the Built Conference. I went to the DTS, which was two days ahead of time. It's Design Technology Summit, and it was, I think, 40 person max and you had to apply to go and so wow i was accepted to go into that there was maybe 25 people there so they they definitely have room so if, if anybody who's listening to the show is really into design technology for your firm uh, and you want to be in a peer group of people who are kind of thinking about the future and where it's headed and sharing information about that kind of stuff, you should definitely apply. I don't know where the conference is going to be next year. It does move around, but it is a great experience. And so I would encourage you to do that because you are in a group of, you know, digital practice people, design technology people who are in the HKSs and the HOKs and that those kinds of firms. So you can really kind of get a handle on what's going on. And everybody talks really candidly. It's it's pretty cool. So the, the Design Technology Summit, like I said, happens two days before so that all those people could have the, the opportunity to hang out and go to the rest of the built conference as well. So we have people from my firm who went or going or who did go to the built conference. Uh, so I didn't stay for that part of it, but I might try to do that next year. We'll see. Anyway, I think the topics were were really interesting. So the there's kind of like the tenets of of what the design technology summit is all about, and and one of those is 
working towards a model centric workflow. And so what, what else is needed to get us to that point? What are, what are the roadblocks? What could we ask technology or software vendors to implement to help us get there? And then just kind of talking candidly about what the different roadblocks are that are out there in the world. What are they? Well, there's a lot of them, right? There's, I think we're getting a lot closer to where that is, but this is one of those things where we deal with agencies who still are 2D paper-based, right? So right, that's right. a big one because of the way that we have to submit our stuff. And then there's there's the construction side of it, which we're seeing less and less the need to be paper-based, right? A lot of... A lot of contractors do their own BIM modeling based on our BIM modeling, too. And I know BIM modeling is a little redundant, but it it sounds better. <laughs> um, I believe it. But it's it's one of those things where contractors build these things because they want to do all the clash detection before they build it and make sure that they don't necessarily trust what we're doing. And that that was one of the big topics, actually, was this, yeah, it's sort of their job. It's this low trust environment. Too. I mean. One of the things holding us back is the is the um, how can we raise the level of trust between this? How can a contractor be assured that they're getting a federated model with 100% integrity, right? And things aren't faked, and there's no dummy crap in there, and there's everything actually has the I part of BIM, the information attached to it, so that they could build from it. So one of the outcomes yeah, is we yeah. have to build really strong no shortcuts models and i'm not saying we have to build them to the highest level of detail but they do need to have the right information in them and they can't have shortcuts taken and which we do all the time the deadline gets closer you want it to make you our job is to make it buildable from the 2d paper right not the 3d model right right so there's all kinds of liberties taken to get it to that point especially when you start throwing people at the project because the deadline is getting there faster and they don't necessarily know the standards of the project and these are things that we all deal with right well i think the problem there is is that we know that we're creating a 2d document and so that's why we spend the time to make the 2d documents look right and not spend a lot of time or put a lot of effort into making sure the 3D model is fully right. Yep. And you're right. So, you know, getting away from, if we start to rely more on building off of the 3D models, then I think we would probably spend more time making sure that effort is where you're saying it needs to be. Yep. Yeah. So, so I have a question about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I like the idea of building a model, having it built from a model, right? I mean, but, but you you mentioned actually one of the roadblocks is agencies or our agencies. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if we if we're building models and we're only focusing on the architects and the contractors here. I mean, maybe that side works, but how do we get the agencies to be able to plan check a model? Was that you discussed? You want to know the hard truth? Well, I'm being curious. I, I the people yeah. the people who are there right now doing the plan checking need to retire, or they need to be you know trained. But I mean, once newer people come into that side of the profession, the the plan reviewing and the permitting and all that other stuff. Once, once we have younger people who are trained in the kind of software that we're putting buildings together in, you 
probably you're going to start to see a shift towards that direction. You have to have somebody but from that side that... pushing for that. Right. So they right. have to realize and the and value the in it. Right and we have to continue to talk about the value in it. And they actually have to realize the value in it for that to begin to happen. And I think and what's what's interesting is this: it is happening in certain jurisdictions, in certain places around the world. I mean, there was a, a company at one of the old Autodesk universities that I went to where it's a, I think it was a Norwegian engineering firm that did infrastructure and they did a dam and it was a damn good project. I'll just say that. <laughs> but it was entirely digital. It was all the, the, the entire planning, the modeling, the submission, all of the shop drawings went back and forth. Everything There was zero paper and that was their claim. On the project uh-huh. was there was zero paper and it was a huge project. They did all of the the computational analyses on it, you know, for flow. I mean, you're doing you're doing really intensive studies to make sure that the the infrastructure is going to perform correctly, that that the water moves through it correctly, that you know they're using it for power generation. So there's all kinds of stuff going on that you couldn't even do on paper anyway. So it, it made sense, but. There's lots of other examples of this kind of thing happening out there as well. And and they there's called EPCs, engineer, procure and construct. These are the types of firms, they are the huge firms that most people don't talk about because they're they keep everything really close to the vest, but they're the companies who are doing it all. It's a single entity, they're designing, they're buying, they're building, punching, starting up, turning it over. They're doing it all. They own the building, but they just don't talk about it because it's it's highly competitive process and obviously they have lots of intellectual property buried in that to make it happen but it is happening out there there are firms who are doing it there are definitely examples but i think in in most of our day-to-day stuff we don't get to see that so it's kind of like somebody's running a faster 100 meter dash right like people don't know what they're capable of until they see someone else do it and so now all of a sudden the record is shattered and or you know whatever the, the latest marathon record is like nobody thinks this certain time is possible until somebody does it. And then all of a sudden the record gets shattered over and over and over again. So it's kind of like that for this. It's just, it's the next big frontier, I think for the type of work, especially in these larger projects that we're doing, not necessarily single family homes or anything like that, although that would be great, but the tending to be the, you need the high sophistication contractor to be able to pull this off you also need a high sophistication level with the entity that is overseeing all of the the code compliance um and so those those are the things that we're dealing with with that specific topic I'm curious also, and I think you've mentioned this before, Evan, maybe you can re- remind me about this, but I wonder how much of the plan check process could be automated yeah I, we're starting to right. see that i and i I think that you know, obviously you can, you can run structural analysis for, for, you could do fire and life safety type stuff. You can definitely do egress requirements. AI could run a model on egress requirements through a building easily, right? And just tell you what pass or fail, make sure your door swings are the right widths and directions and you've got the right egress width and you've got the right, you know, no dead end corridors and all that kind of stuff. That's all totally something AI can easily be trained to do. And I think it is in certain jurisdictions. So I don't see why – I mean, this is actually a topic of day two was wh- what would you want Alexa to do for you if it was sitting on your desk at work? 
And I, one of the things mm-hmm. that I would love to see is just a continual code check, right? Make sure that your design is within code for any number of things. Why not? Right. Why right. not save those, get rid of those mistakes that cost time and money later on now, right? Get rid right. of those you know, now. Right. There are, there are people concerned in our industry, well, maybe not so much in our industry, but being replaced, right? Uh, by computers or by automation. And that's one of the holdups for sure. Yeah. But I also think that this is pretty exciting because it, it, what I see the AI in, in, if we're talking about the plan check process here doing is not necessarily, I mean, one of the bottlenecks here is sometimes interpretation of the code and then other times just the sheer workload volume, right? I've, I have a sure. project that I'm not getting uh, plan check comments back from the fire because there's eight other projects in front of him he's got to get through to get to ours. And so maybe if some of that stuff could be checked with AI in models yeah. automatically, that instead of being eight in front, you know, your project's ready to be looked at tomorrow. I, mean, I agree. I, so I'm not, I'm not replacing anyone here, but no, I'm speeding up the entire process well, because it's allowing, that's one of our problems right it's also now allowing getting you, things built. It's allowing you to do what, what you want to do versus what you, the mundane kind of have to do. Sure. sure that, 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 that's, that's, that's true for plan check, for architects, for engineer, for anybody, right? Right. One of the, that is probably the biggest attractive thing about AI is that it can do things that I don't want to do so that I can spend time where I'm valuable, which is in design or ideas or. Right. Well, right. it'd be, it, it would be really interesting to, you know, test this concept out because, you know, in the codes, there are tons of exceptions and there's a lot of times where we're looking for those exceptions to be able to do things that we want to do that typically the code wouldn't allow except for these exceptions. Yep. And, and you know, it it could say, well, you can do this or that. And then you pick one, right? You, you have the ability to have it present you with an opportunity to make a decision and you make your decision based on that. And then the model starts from that point and goes forward, right? Like that, the, the calc on the model continues once a decision has been made, right? But at that point it stops and presents you with, well, you could do this, this, or this, what do you want to do? I mean, we're already seeing that now with projects like project fractal from Autodesk, where you can load in a bunch of design constraints using dynamo. And so you could, you could put in a property, line you could put in um maybe a a max height on your building you could put in some zoning setbacks and you could put in like some various program and say show me all the design iterations that you could possibly do within this space but but limit it to ten thousand let's just use a low number like ten thousand right and it'll take 30 seconds to do that okay (laughs) and and then you you can go through the 10,000 options if you really wanted to and say, wow, you know, 9,900 of these really suck, right? They're nothing I would ever do. Now I've got 100 to work with, and I could, from that 100, do a critical analysis in 10 minutes and say, uh, I'm going to go with these three as a starting point. So in 15 minutes, you have accomplished more than, like, a human could ever do, right? We could do a few in 15 minutes. You could do one scheme, right? Um, you've got something to go off that is based on rules, based on hard constraints 
that are great starting points for you to begin your creative process. And that's nothing to be scared of, I don't think. That's something where it's like, wow, that's an advantage. That gives me an advantage. It just did a bunch of stuff that I couldn't do, didn't really want to do, but it got me to a starting point much quicker so that I can base my ideas off off a real something that could actually work. Right? I think and I think if you if you stop even thinking about this just from an architectural project standpoint as far as like the hard building, look at it from a project management standpoint. Wouldn't you like to say, here's the budget, here's the people, here's the uh deadline, figure out my schedule. Right? Oh. Why wouldn't yeah. why wouldn't you take advantage of that? Nobody no, wants to do tons that. Of... <laughs> right? right? Or here's all the people who could do the project. Build my team. Right? Why wouldn't why give me three options for a team based on availability, um, who needs certain opportunities for career development, who need who who is the best fit for this project, who's the best team? Why wouldn't you take that that kind of insight to something where it's like yeah, I don't want to do that. Staffing is a pain in the ass, right? So that was day two, uh, actually. So it's funny because these things are obviously are all interwoven. But day two is all about AI and, and talking about if, if Alexa were on your desk, what would you want to ask it how to do? And I put that question out on Twitter and I had a few people tweet back at me. It was kind of cool to see that because um, it was more than just what was happening at the conference. But, I mean, if you if you really thought about if you had Alexa, t- tell me – who needs training? Like it, it could just watch your Revit models and, and see who does what and, and say, well, here's some really cool training opportunities because these people keep screwing this up. <laughs> that happens, right? Nobody knows yeah. everything, right? Mm-hmm. So right. so right. who needs training? Um, let's see, what else what did I... What were some of the other ideas that came up? Well, some I'm that curious. I mentioned, put together the best team. Um, you could say, give me the the best answer based on these these things with, with, with three options. Um because we, you know, so so actually to to dial it back a bit, one of the quest the bigger kind of overall questions guiding this whole session is how do you know when to trust AI versus mm. you know because right now I mean we kind of blindly trust a lot of it that we don't even realize what that's happening right you put a letter in the mailbox to send it to Neil how does it get to Neil I just trust that you're going to get it and guess what you do get it. Right, but right. that that is AI. That is optical character recognition, where these letters are being scanned at a crazy rate, and they have been for the last thirty years with the most terrible handwriting on the envelope, and it still gets to you in two days. How's that happen? Right? How do, how does your bag get from me checking it in onto the airplane back off where I get off? There's just a piece of paper tag that some robot is scanning, and it adjust the conveyor system to get that bag exactly where it needs to go a lot of this happens without us even realizing that it's happening but these are all things that have been designed to make all of these systems more efficient so we already are trusting a lot of these i mean if you read something on wikipedia is it true you're damn right it's true it's on wikipedia it's not right (laughs) it's not blowing my mind here evan but that's one of those things where like we already trust it do you trust amazon reviews do you trust Netflix reviews? Like all that kind of stuff is is AI, and and I think at at a certain low level we do trust it already. But I think a lot of people are still really scared to to say so, they trust it <laughs> or to actually trust it, right? Who who goes? To, I go to Amazon. I read the one star reviews, right? What what do people hate about this thing? 
because those are typically really truthful. Like they're people can yeah. buy Amazon reviews, right? So just as an example, um, that's something I think we have to figure out is how to. And so I guess if you think about trusting it, and this again goes back to building better models, we have to put good information in because if you put garbage in, you're going to get garbage out. So if you really want it to work for you and use the best data, the best information, you have to put the right stuff in so that you can trust what it's giving you back out of it. And so it's going to force us to be a lot more uh, thorough and honest with the stuff that we put into our, our projects and the data that we put out into the world and into our profession so that we can trust it. Because this is not, this is something that I think would benefit all firms kind of equally, but you know that everybody's going to be trying to develop this stuff on their own with their own secret sauce. But, but really the more data you throw at a thing like this at AI with machine learning, the more data you throw at it, the better outcome you're going to get. This really would benefit the entire profession to work on this together because we all know, we've all read the reports that architecture is one of the lowest innovative professions out there, right? Below agriculture, below everything. Like it's, it's like the bottom one, two, or three industries where innovation happens. And it's things like this that are going to help get us, put us back in the race, right? We're totally losing the race. But uh, we have to be able to figure out how to adopt these things, and, but also get good information out of it so that it is useful. Otherwise, it's, it's totally useless. So yeah. I'm I'm going to take us I have a question for you Evan. Yeah. This is it all sounds great and fantastic and maybe the future of our industry. But how do we distill this down to the the bulk of our industry, right? The firms that are 4, 3, 1, mm -hmm. less than 10, right? How do we get that what you're telling me down to that level? Because I, you, we mentioned barriers before. I think that's one of the barriers. Sure. Maybe Cormac's right. We just need to die off and let the younger generation come up with that technology well, and they replace I mean, the one-person firms with, with this. But, I mean, still the barrier's there, and the biggest barrier right now is the cost. Sure. Okay. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that upfront cost of things. And if you're a, you know, sole proprietor or, you know, a really small firm... I mean, you've got to sit down and look at the hard numbers of being able to say whether or not the that upfront cost is going to pay off. You know, you're going to get that return on your investment and they're going to look for the shortest return on the investment or at least something that is going to increase productivity and, and things like that. And And so, I mean, that's probably, I would say, one of the biggest hurdles that you have and, and the learning curve. The okay, learning yeah. the, you know, a new software. Um, because, I mean, hell, I mean, think about, you know, walk around your office right now. I mean, we all have larger offices. Look at the older folks versus the newer folks and look at their comfort level of, you know, the use of the new technologies, um, which aren't really that new. I mean, Revit's been around for quite a while. I mean, look at, you know, where their comfort levels are and, and then, you know, look at, you know, who they're having to do a lot of like the more technology intensive stuff. Evan's probably an anomaly in a lot of cases where, you know, you have a 40 something year old being the spearhead for, um, you know, for technology. Yeah. I'm the old I mean, guy. A again. lot of time. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, you, you, a lot of time, I mean, you are, you know, not to 
sound offensive. No, I mean, sorry, you're typically Evan. the old guy. Sorry, shut up, Cormac. <laughs> no, I said it. I said it. <laughs> it's it's it is it's true but, because uh, you know my peers in the industry. Well, while while I'm not completely an anomaly, my, most of my peers are quite a bit younger. But I I'm also of the mindset that this is this is the future and this is where I want to spend my time in our profession. And so I think that's what yeah. it really takes. It's just a mindset. But I think what's a great advantage to someone like you being a spearhead of this versus um, somebody who's younger is that you're able to see, especially now with looking at the, let's just say maybe late 30s through early 50s, you know, class of people in the profession that didn't necessarily grow up with this kind of technology you're able to understand both sides of the fence and are able to figure out how to get older folks and younger folks to be able to work on a productivity based, you know, technology or an automated based technology or you know, whatever together and, you know, be, be able to build, understand limitations and stuff like that, you know, and like I'm looking at the project that I'm working on and, and we've got varying levels of skills when it comes to Revit, but we also have varying levels of experience and some of the people who are less apt on the, uh, on Revit, um, have more experience in the buildability, um, of a building and things like that. And so, you Absolutely. know, it's, it's, you know, so using the, you know, the Take advantage of that um, experience, AI, exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, put the but, two together, using that, got to have the chocolate exactly. and the peanut butter together. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, I mean, I, I got to ask, I mean, Neil's been asking some really good questions actually, but the question that I want to ask Neil Uh-oh. is, so, I mean, Evan's gone through all of this stuff. Do you think it is more likely that the robots will kill Evan first <laughs> Or will they keep him around to be, you know, a, a working drone for him? I think we're going to them. the jury's out on that. Well, <laughs> we might have to take a while. But, but Cormac, I think what you were trying to say earlier is that uh, our generation's not going to be like our parents when we get old. Like, you know, why does the VCR still blink 12? Right, right. right. I mean, exactly. you're trying to say we're going to be able to, a little more adaptable than our parents? Well, I mean, you know, the funny thing about it is, it, like, just I mean, take my household, for example. I mean, you know, I have a 17-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 10-year-old. And then, you know, here's me and my wife. And my wife is... is you know, ah, don't go there. Just say your wife. Well, Keep she, going. She's, she's technologically challenged. Uh-oh. But... You better, you're um, editing this one. Which you is fine. Which is fine. Out. And she's... She's totally okay with it, and she's she's fine with me being the the troubleshooter. But it, what's funny about it is, is I'm actually the most technologically savvy of the household, which is odd because you would think that you know kids who are growing up on technology would like outpace me um, tenfold, and, and they're not. Which maybe it's because I do everything well, for they've, them. They've and also, I should stop yeah, they've that. grown up with it, and it's just normal and. Right. But yeah, I mean, right. you exactly. have to fight for your yeah. <laughs> your knowledge there. Right, exactly. Um, you know, so but Neil, I th I think that you know we are. I mean, I think we have an advantage working in the design and construction industry, being able to utilize all of these cutting edge technologies, um, which really aren't, but they are to to most people who are looking at it, it's like, wow, how can you even do that? 
and we're just like, eh, we just do it. No. Well, and most of the day-to-day us, technologies we're working with, even say Revit and things aren't cutting edge, but the stuff that Evan was talking about earlier in, in this DTS con- uh, conference are definitely much more on the cutting edge. That's, that's and, out and there. I was, I was, inc- I was including that okay. as well okay. as, as, as part of that is like, you know, because if our industry seeing that in, you know, with this summit, if, if they're starting to identify the future technologies that our profession is going to be using, I mean, we're, we're not there, but we're getting to the, we all hope that we're getting to the point where we are going to be more cutting edge, that we are, you know, back to what we've been talking about this whole time. You know, we, you know, when we're able to get the permitting department and the contractors and the architects and the owners all to be able to embrace more forward thinking technologies to be able to become more productive, quicker in construction, probably possibly even cheaper in construction. Well, we have to do Um, that. I mean, we have to be able to use our technology to get better, faster, and and less expensive because everything's getting more expensive. Regulations are making things take so much longer that we have to shorten what we do on our side to compensate, I think. Well, look, I mean, one, one of the things that I think keeps coming up with this conversation is that i mean your your initial question neil was how do the, how do the small guys get to use this stuff how right. how could they and and honestly i don't know the answer because i think the conundrum that we're in is that like i laid out a, a few minutes ago there are people who are doing this but it's top secret right well and and they because it's a competitive advantage for them that's why and so we have to either decide that we are going to use this technology and develop it firm by firm or person by person as the case may be and keep it to ourselves or we have to decide that we want our entire profession to be here in 20 years and work on it together and that is a really tough decision for a lot of people because right now it is early early days on this stuff and people do want that competitive advantage more than anything right it's for we see small firms being bought up all the time or medium firms being bought up all the time by the extra large firms and and pretty soon you're going to have five extra large firms right like we've got five huge technology companies and you got a a bunch of little tiny tiny ones and that's it right Mm -hmm. and so we're that stuff does take a long time to trickle down. Like I think I mentioned in a previous episode, like Mercedes invented ABS back in the day. They've invented a lot of things. You know, you've got all of this technology in automobiles that eventually makes its way down to the lowest priced Hyundai that you can buy or whatever car you want to say, right? Every every car has it now, but it took a very long time for that to happen. That would happen with this too. But we have to yeah. decide how important it is to the future of our profession to still be a viable one. Um for this kind of thing to, to really get down to that level as quickly as possible. Yeah. I think that quickly as possible is the important thing here. I think it will get there. Um, I'm not sure if it'll get to, to how far it'll get during most of our careers. Uh, but much like when CAD first came in, right? Only the big firms had it. And then it slowly started to trickle down. The costs trickled down enough that, we could all start using it. Same with BIM uh, applications, uh, the Revits of the world and such. That was the big firms at first started using it. Now the individual's using it. 
So this is what what you're talking about and how this modeling would work and 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 building from that. It's it's out there, but eventually it'll get down to everybody. It it'll happen. It's just going to take a while, and it's our decision on how quickly it happens. It is. I mean, it's it, partially right. It's we can't control well, yeah. how other people act, but I I would encourage people out there who work for firms if if you're not thinking about this stuff i would encourage you to do that and i i know like one of the last episodes we talked about what our typical day was like and i said a lot of my day is is strategy and it's this kind of stuff that i'm talking about and it's thinking about how does this apply to us how can we contribute to the profession how can the profession help contribute to us what what other firm's shoulders can we build on because yeah we're we're late to this game too i mean there's there's companies have been doing this for years and years and years um, so it's something definitely to be on your radar. And if, because if you work for a large firm and this is not on your radar, you better find somebody quick or else you might as well give up because this is the kind of thing that right. is a, it's the tidal wave that is coming. And if you're not ready for it, you, you do not want to be left behind in this. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different initiatives out there that are like that, where if you're not doing it, you, you better figure out how you can start doing it very quickly or else you're going to be irrelevant so a couple i can give you guys a couple other ideas here for for the types of things that that you could use this for just that were just mentioned off the cuff so um let's see build a proposal based on previous proposals for an rfp right so just take take the last 50 proposals that we've done and and take a shot at building one that could be a starting point for this rfp I talked about zoning, yeah. local requirements, uh, code changes. I think our marketing. Yeah, marketing department right now, like well, marketing how much that. of your marketing department spends their time just starting from scratch every time? Oh, how, how about this, guys? What if these different systems, because usually marketing proposals and accounting are very different, say, systems mm -hmm. in our offices. Mm -hmm. What if build that proposal, use the previous data that's over here in marketing for similar types of projects and build my fee. Yeah, totally. Exactly right. Um, how about cost changes like immediately it. based on changing wall assembly types or whatever? Yes. Um, I like that. How about balancing the workload based on the people on the project? Comparing an as-built laser scan to design intent. So like as a building is being constructed, continually scanning the building with laser scanning and then comparing that back to the to the model to make sure that everything is going incorrectly or that wow. one or the other needs to be changed. Uh, there, there's actually a company out there called Doxel that I think is backed by Facebook. Um, so there's a lot of non-architectural tech companies that are really trying to zero in on our profession because of the lack of innovation because they can fund that innovation. There's so much money in Silicon Valley uh, that that's happening. They're trying to figure out where they can capitalize on our profession. And an example of that is this company named Doxel, where they have this little rover robot that, that crawls job sites, just like Google crawls the web. You know, They crawl it and index it. That's what this thing does to a building as it's going up. And it can identify whether the HVAC uh, installer has reached the point where they said they would be that day because Whoa. it can identify whether ductwork has been installed or not. Right. So they're using AI for the purpose of seeing where their job is on track, who's doing what, who's not doing what it's, it's really interesting stuff. Well, what would be great is that that 
you know, application can be used as a real time um, tracking of your percentages of completion. Totally. So that when you're reviewing pay applications and they say, we're 80%, like, well, are you? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, but the funny thing, Cormac, here is that it's the contractors using this on themselves. Which is good because, I mean, they're the ones who can track their the profitabilities. And if they've scheduled everything out and they're saying, okay, in my three-week look ahead, we've got uh, this going in at this time. And then once this uh, task is completed, you know, we're going to start doing this and then we're going to start doing this. They are tracking those milestones. You know, they can track the productivity. They can track their profitability. And they say, look, you know, if we can do this two days better or one day better, equates to, say, a 0.5% increase in our profitability. Hey, I have a question about this. How much do you think these technology companies are doing this? Because for the reasons that they see they recognize a problem in our industry and they recognize it because these businesses, these tech companies, they need space, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. I drive past Facebook uh, to one of my jobs uh, every, you know, every week and they're building. They're building very sure. large buildings. Sure. And so they probably recognize, holy moly, this, well, they, this is, they, here's a problem yeah, we they have. They see those problems. They see those they inefficiencies see them, and, and then, then they turn like, it into a product. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's right. Exactly. I'm looking at the page for uh, Doxel, and their part of their video has a an iPhone that says, "Oh, the mechanical systems are behind schedule" or something right. like yeah. that. Just a little send, pop up notification. Right. Yeah. Like, Holy totally. smokes! This is incredible. Well, how, how about how about the more ma mundane stuff? This seems like super easy to me. I don't I don't program this stuff, so I don't really know. But Google, well, let's just okay. Google already scans your email, right? If you have a Gmail account, they scan your email, and so if you have a flight coming up that you got a confirmation for, it's going to automatically put that in your calendar because it recognizes some string of text and it throws right. that in your calendar and it gives you all the the dates and times and the flight number and, and confirmation over all that stuff right where you need it, right? Mm -hmm. Well, imagine an RFI comes in from the contractor and it just it goes into a system, right? They type it into a system. And they, they're talking about steel and they're talking about, you know, a drag strut or whatever. Well, why wouldn't that automatically get sent to the structural engineer? The contractor should not even have to say who it's for. But based right. on the language in the document, it knows who to send it to. And it automatically goes to that person and it sets a, basically a timer when it has to be returned by. It could help you do that kind of thing. Just kind of like now on your on your mm, home right, screen on right. your phone, right? It says leave 15 minutes earlier today because there's traffic. Right. Right. It's predictive. It's that kind of stuff that I think is low hanging fruit that we could all benefit from. Right. Uh, that would be helpful. I think Very one helpful. of the one of the biggest things that that really struck me was just this real simple statement that somebody made was people forget things, right? But Right. If you train the computer one time, it never forgets and it builds on it. And that to me is what's most interesting about this kind of stuff is that it just gets smarter. It just gets smarter every single time that you throw more data at it. So you've you've got to throw good data at it. Um and once you do, you're you're on the path to training it to be more to work for you. And I think that's something that everybody's kind of looking for is just have it work for you. Have it be what I call like a, a benevolent assistant. Like that's what that's what the goal is. I want a smart, 
goodwill assistant that's helping you make decisions. And sometimes it gives you options. It doesn't make the decision for you or it gives you a great point to jump off from because obviously people are scared about, like you said, Cormac, like, is the robot going to kill me? (laughs) Like we've all seen Terminator, (laughs) right? We've all, we all know about, uh, about the stuff you've seen, you've seen the robot dog that, that can still open the door, even though someone's trying to keep the door shut. Um, those videos are freaky as hell, right? So um, that's that's the same technology, but we have to decide how we can use it to our advantage, how we can use it for good, and how we can take a lot of the, the low-hanging fruit off the table so that we can really focus on the stuff that we can do better, add value to the profession, and and continue to get paid as architects for, for what we do best, not necessarily what we, we do every day, which is a lot of mundane stuff that we don't want to be doing. Right. So all right. all interesting topics um very like very conversational at DTS, very much um open forum for people throwing in all kinds of ideas whether they're either with or against the idea and and lots of neat conversations. So again, I would just encourage if you're interested in this stuff, this is definitely a conference to watch for that. So we'll put a link very to it cool. in the show notes. What a sure. great experience. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I I have a a place like this to share this kind of stuff because I think we can all benefit from it in in the profession, or we can all be scared of it, whatever. At least we're having a conversation (laughs) about it, and and so if if you're out there listening and and you have stuff to add, please do, um, because I think that using ArcaSpeak as a platform to get this information out there is is a fantastic thing. I mean, that's, I love to share this kind of stuff. So if, if you, if you liked it, let us know. And, and if you have things to add, definitely let us know as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Hey, let's, uh, let's wrap this one up and remind everyone that this episode is brought to you by RCAT and the music is by system kid. You can subscribe to ArcaSpeak on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, or you can even listen directly from our site at ArcaSpeakPodcast.com. You can follow the show on social media via Twitter and Facebook. Links to those can also be found at arcaspeak.com. And remind everyone to please stay subscribed. And thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time. See ya. The robots are coming for us. Ah! Run! Bye.
everything's gonna be 